Let's begin. I want to start this evening um, with a quotation. It's a piece of text. And in a way, this particular piece of text could become, I'm not going to, but it could become actually the theme for every talk this week. There's so much contained in it. But let me read this and you can judge. Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Choose your words, for they become actions. Understand your actions, because they become habits. Study your habits, for they become your character. Develop your character, because it becomes your life. There's a lot in that, as you can probably gather. And uh, the particular part that will concern us more, although I will try and cover very briefly most of what it's dealing with, is the part about actions and habits. Because habits are actually what leads to the non-equanimous life. When we're caught in patterns of reactivity and habits, then there can't be equanimity. It's almost as if we're on kind of automatic pilot. You know, somebody pushes a button and there we are reacting. These are often the habits. Now, in the Buddhist way of life, habit is not to be overcome by habit. So it's not even to be overcome by developing good habits. Good habits are simply interims. That's all. Um, Habits themselves are tracks down which the mind runs and if they are bad habits obviously they lead into one particular circumstance if they're good habits they will lead to something better but they are still habits the whole point of this path being a path as it is within all of the Buddhist traditions a path to liberation then it's a liberation from habit as much as anything else. A liberation from reactive patterns. Now I'm going to come back to this text in a minute, but I just want to explore that idea a little bit. Most of you will have probably come across a big Buddhist word, even if you don't know any Pali or Sanskrit. And this is a big Buddhist word. It's called Nirvana. In the West we make a rock band out of it. But in the East it stands for something a lot more. Um, Nirvana actually is a very simple term in Pali and Sanskrit, or Nibbana as it is in Pali. And it basically means to cease or to stop, to go out, to blow out, to be extinguished. It has all of these connotations within it. So it's about the, the going out of something. Generally, this is referred to in the ancient texts as a fire. This has a lot to do with Indian society at the time of the Buddha, where fire was one of the main elements around which sacrifices were actually um, performed, as they are still to this day. If you go into a Hindu temple, you will find a, a fire, and you will find people doing rituals round a fire. 
Now this is all part of the Buddha's context and what he's talking about here it actually is not fires but the going out of fires. And the going out of the fires which he is talking about are the going out of the fires of greed, aversion and delusion. These, if you like, are the unwholesome trinity. You know, these are the, uh, the diabolical trinity of all Buddhist practice. All of our unwholesome psychology is rooted in these three things, in greed, aversion and delusion. And so, actually, a lot of practice, sitting on the cushion, is actually a lot of getting to know your greed, aversion and delusion. Um, this is what comes up in the mind again and again and again. I don't know if you noticed, even in such a short exposure as today, how often themes will keep repeating themselves in the mind. Worries and anxieties and you know, disagreements and resentments, and these are the things that keep on occurring again and again and again. I mean, the human mind is the most perfect organic recycling machine. It just keeps recycling the same stuff again and again and again. You know, it just keeps coming round and round and round. And so, when we are observing in this way, what we're observing actually is habitual tendencies. Now, another understanding of this word nibbana or nirvana is actually to unbind from habitual tendencies, to release oneself. It can be literally translated as unbinding. You know, the idea of being bound to something is being bound to a sense of repetition. Have you noticed how life just seems to go round and round and round in repetitive patterns? I don't know if it's like that for you, but it was always like that for me. The sense of stuff coming round again and again and again and problems in a sense reoccurring again, although not identically in very, very similar ways. And we often find repetitive patterns in our lives when we look back over, you know, no matter what age we are, we can look back and we can see repetitive patterns occurring again and again and again. Now the opposite of nirvana in this ancient language of both Pali and Sanskrit is a term which is called sangsara. Now if we made a rock band out of nirvana, we made a perfume out of sangsara. <laughs> And sangsara, literally, in Pali and Sanskrit, means to repeat. Literally, it is, uh, its literal etymology in these languages is to go round in circles. You know? This is what we're bound to, repetitive patterns, circularity in behavior, circularity in thought. And I don't know how this ever feels to you if you do notice this in yourself. It can all feel very claustrophobic when we're bound to the same repetitive pattern, when we see the same thoughts coming up again and again. The same anxieties keep repeating themselves. The same worries keep on repeating themselves. It was uh, very interesting that, of course, that a lot of these worries and a lot of these anxieties never play out in actuality. They never actually come to fruition. Mark Twain once said, he says, my life has been full of untold miseries, most of which have never occurred. <laughs> you know, because it's just the thought patterns um, which we get 
caught into where we see this endless, endless repetition, this endless unfolding of scenarios, most of which actually never occur in our lives. And all of this, all of this you know, conglomeration of various factors is what we could loosely or roughly call habit. Now, in the original languages, again, of this tradition, um, these go under a much more sort of, um, much more specific name. They're called sankharas. And sankharas literally means formations, things which are formed and are forming. It has both connotations. Out of habits, we make further habits. Now, that we need to be very careful the Buddha makes very, very clear in his teaching. We need to be very careful about our habits. Coming back to this quotation, understand your actions so they become habits. Study your habits because they become your character. The Buddha goes on even further in one other text to say, you know, what becomes your habits becomes literally, as this text goes on to say, in a similar fashion, becomes the shape of your life. So if habits are unexamined, if we don't actually begin to take a close look of what goes on in our repetitive automatic patterns, then we're simply caught into cycles of repetition, cycles of habitual, you know, habitual natures of which we find very, very little release from. We're just caught into this. It's like the mouse caught on the treadmill. You know, we never step off of it. It keeps going round and round and round and round. In fact, the whole notion of sangsara itself. I mean, I wished I'd coined this. You know, it was a friend of mine who actually coined this. He said that sangsara was one vast bad habit. <laughs> so this whole notion of what, in sense, is the problem within, um, within human life and the problem particularly in which Buddhist practice addresses is this problem of the vast bad habit. It is the problem of sangsara. It's the problem of repetition. It's the problem of being compelled to do things in terms of reactivity. Now, reactivity, of course, is the complete opposite of responsiveness. When we're caught into reactive patterns, we cannot respond. All we keep doing, again, is bringing the same mental thoughts, the same patterns of activity, to our perceptions and therefore we react so we're caught into these really heavy duty patterns of reactivity in fact reactivity is most of what I think ordinary human life is about it's not about release it's not about equanimity it's not about any degree of freedom in Buddhism, when, they, when we speak about freedom, this is not the freedom to do anything you want to. It's more the freedom from rather than the freedom to. It's the freedom from reactive patterns. It's freedom from the bondage of greed, aversion and delusion 
which some sense in some ways create those reactive patterns. All of this, all of the unwholesome human psychology, which I referred to very briefly, is rooted in this greed, aversion, and delusion. And so when we see these patterns of anger and irritation and all of the things that we know, I think, all too familiarly in ordinary, li in ordinary life, what we see is our rootedness in aversion. Yeah. When we find ourselves caught into patterns of desire, whether it's sexual desire or desire for objects and material things and that, we're caught into and bound to the patterns of greed. And where both greed and aversion is present, there is also delusion present. Now, delusion is not meant to be pejorative here. It's not meant to be something that finger wags at, wags at you and says, you're all deluded. You know, it's nothing like this at all. Um, the delusion here is, in some sense, almost part of the warp and woof of our life. It's part of the carpet of, of our experience, which we walk on and don't actually even see. Another way of translating this, um, there's a number of words which are used in Pali and Sanskrit, um, but another way of translating this is the fundamental pattern of our confusion. Yeah, this is our confusion with life. Our confusion about what to do for the best. Our confusion about how to gain some degree of peace, some lack of agitation in our life. Perhaps, you know, using the big word which is included in the title of this week, finding some degree of equanimity in our life. Now, I think most of us are caught into some quest for that, caught into some looking for something which is a resting place, a place which isn't constantly agitated, constantly buffeted. You know, we might call that, as many people do, it seems to be part of the lingua franca at the moment, of even political debate, happiness. We might call it happiness and the search for happiness. Now, the Buddha um, puts a very you know, particular definition of what happiness is, and he says the greatest happiness is contentment. The greatest happiness is the equanimous mind, is the mind that isn't buffeted um, by all the things that I spoke about last night and the things that I've mentioned today, particularly the patterns of reactivity. So the mind, which is a free mind, is a mind which is free of the agitations, free of all of those agitations of greed, aversion and confusion. Let's use that word instead of delusion. Of this fundamental sense of confusedness about what to do for the best in our lives. It's almost as if we have the best intentions, um, but somehow screw up along the way. You know, we go out in every day. I know, I'm sure most of us go out on our, you know, even when going to work on the day, you, know, you go out with your best intentions. Today I'm not going to be angry or irritated or frustrated and all of these things. And generally we fall about the first or second hurdle. Yeah, it's almost that patterned into us that we... You know, we kind of just fall over at the first or the second thing that happens to us. Um, because these patterns are so, so deeply buried in us, they are somehow activated so quickly. Sometimes these are not even perceptible 
in, our, in, in certain states of mind, uh, that they become actually underlying tendencies. And they become underlying tendencies, and we think we might have dealt with them. Then something comes along and pushes the button, and there you find you are back into the same patterns of aversion and greed and clinging and desire and the fundamental patterns of confusion as well. So confusion is that which underlies all of this sense. And I really do want to stress it as confusion, not just as delusion, and particularly not as ignorance, although that's not a bad translation. It's a translation, although in Eng- you know, it's a translation which is very accurate to a degree, but in English it often has this extremely harsh sense of being very, very critical of saying to somebody, you're ignorant or deluded about something. Now, the Buddha has no intention of that. He's saying this is part of the fundamental human condition, this sense of confusedness that we have. That often, as I've mentioned before, we often have this intention to act for the best and end up actually exacerbating the problem that we're engaging in, simply because we don't have the requisite tools uh, to be able to apply. We don't have the requisite distance uh, from our reactive patterns to be able to see. Now, these reactive patterns are formed from a very early age. You know, I was joking last night about toys are us, well, habits are us. You know, this is what we think of as being ourselves. So much so that I don't know if you've noticed, if, if, if any of you had a habit challenge with a friend or a relative or something, said, do you know you have this irritating habit? And you'll say something possibly like, well, that's the way I am, <laughs> very defensively. Now, joking aside from this, you know, what we get there is a, is a very close or very good glimpse of how much we think our habits are us, you know, how much they form parts of our identity, our sense of being in the world. So that when they are challenged in these often very, very almost joking ways, sometimes, particularly if it's a you know, good friend or a relative and that, and they might be just teasing you about something, that you get extremely defensive because you feel you're being attacked by this. This is how deeply um, habits are embedded in our psyche and are identified with being ourselves. So these habits played out again and again and again and again as they often are become, as it says here, your character. This is what becomes your character. Our character, you know, let's look on the depressive side for a moment. I'll uh, try and lighten it up a bit as we go along. Um, but the depressive side is if actually your character is nothing but the collection of habits strung together you know, over a lifetime. No matter how old you are, we've been engaged in this lifetime, you know, from our earliest stages of development up until now in developing habits and actually holding on to them. Really actually holding on to them, not wanting to let them go. Liberation is not the problem, actually. It's wanting to be liberated that's the problem. The sense of renouncing everything which is familiar. Now, what is deeply, deeply familiar for all of us is our habit patterns and our patterns of reactions. This is something which is deeply familiar to us. It's something that we know so intrinsically. 
that we're almost scared of its opposite, of the not knowing. Not knowing what a response could be outside of my well-trodden paths of reactivity. So we're caught into these patterns of reactivity. And this is something, of course, that is not just meant to make us feel depressed about ourselves. You know, um, despite the contrary, um, sometimes when you read books on Buddhism, Buddhism isn't there to make you feel more depressed about yourself. It's actually to give us a glimpse in, and the path of meditation is to give us a glimpse into how that we can liberate ourselves from being caught into these patterns being caught into a character which often we don't even like ourselves a lot of the time. Eastern teachers, when they first came to the West, were astonished. And I've often said this in this room in Gaia House. Um, Eastern teachers are often astonished at how much most Western people dislike themselves. They're really astonished by it. And so with some of the fundamental practices, such as the development of friendliness, which is a practice often which is you know, very loosely, very um, quickly gone over in the context in the East. It was even part of my training when we developed, you know, for example, metta, which is a sense of friendliness towards ourselves. It was often done very cursorily. You know, it was something that you really didn't need to bother about because it was just taken for granted that you had a good relationship with yourself. Yeah. I mean, I have Eastern friends who never te- stop telling me how good they are <laughs> uh, at doing certain things. You know, and you know, this is very endearing, a lot of it. Now, we in the West don't often have that for whatever historical social reasons that have given rise to this. We often have this very bad relationship with ourselves. But we're also caught in and compelled almost to cling on to it, to hold on to it as being the familiar, being the known. Can we liberate ourselves from the familiar? This becomes a big question for all of us. Have we got the courage to liberate ourselves from the familiar? There's another word that's used which is absolutely intrinsic to this path. It's intrinsic to the path of meditation. It's either called effort or energy. There's slightly two slightly different words in, in Pali. But one of them, particularly the word for energy, is the word virya. It has the same root etymologically as some words in English, such as virile, virulent, all of these sort of things with this particular um, prefix to it, vir. Now in Pali, this word virya means not just energy, it also means heroism. It means a courageous stance towards things. So to put energy into the process of liberating ourselves, for example, from reactive patterns, requires, if you like, a degree of heroism, a degree of courage in being able to do that. To really throw ourselves energetically into this practice means to confront, in many ways, some of our worst monsters, some of our worst demons, some of the me- some of the many things which we shy away from even beginning to confront. This practice leaves us open to confronting them and actually befriending them, 
as well, as much as that sounds almost like an impossibility, possibly at this stage, to being in a position to befriend what arises and not make an enemy out of it. And I'll let you into a little secret, if you haven't come across this already, thoughts are not your enemies. And whatever the thought is, whether it's the worst possible thought you've ever had in your life, it is not your enemy. As I said last night, it arises and it passes away. They might come back again, but that too will arise and it will pass away. And part of our job in the meditative process in liberating ourselves from reactive patterns is actually to observe that. That every thought, every everything that comes into the mind, if you like, has a very limited shelf life. It will arise, it will hang around for a certain period of time, often an extremely short period of time, and then it will pass away. And it will be replaced by another thought. Every thought, as one tradition says, it's one of the Tibetan traditions, every thought is self-liberating. We don't need to do anything. Yeah, it liberates itself. Yeah. Also, you know, uh, I hear these phrases very much, um, very much parroted sometimes in popular books on Buddhism about letting go of thoughts. I don't know about you, but I've never let go of anything in my life. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not a thought. I mean, if you let go of a thought, I've never let go of a thought. I mean, thoughts, you know, come. And what we do is, what we do is develop skillful ways of redirecting the mind so that they're not actually holding on to those thoughts. So there's no volitional letting go. There's a redirecting and a re, if you like, reprogramming of the mind um, to develop something much more wholesome in our experience. So we don't let go of thoughts so much as we allow them to drop away. We allow them to do what they do naturally. So our thoughts, remember, going right back to the beginning of the quotation, our thoughts which are patterned thoughts are arising, well, they become actions. They become actions of speech particularly. That which we think, we speak. That which we speak, in some senses, has an effect on the world. Now, there's this much abused word, and I say it's abused because most people don't really understand this word, and yet it's passed almost into common language, even in the West, which is the word, I'll use the Sanskrit form of it, which will be more familiar to you, which is the word karma. Karma means activity, means action. That's all it literally means. And what it suggests is that every action has a consequence. Every activity we engage in, even if we sit and do nothing, it has a consequence. For ourselves or for others. This consequence, by the way, which sometimes loosely is often referred to as karma as well, technically is known as vipaka. It literally means the fruit. It's that which fruits. The Buddha, because of the time he lived in, um, and still a part of India where he lived and taught, is very much an agrarian society. 
he uses agricultural, horticultural metaphors here. And so he says that every action that we engage in is like a seed. It's like planting a seed. And at some point it's going to fruit in our lives. Some of the fruiting will be sooner and some of the fruiting will be later. Just like different trees, when you plant them, will have different fruiting times. So it's very much the idea that through our literal physical activities, through our actions of speech, we're always planting seeds. In other words, they're always going to lead to consequences. Some of those consequences are directly observable, and some of the consequences will be delayed, deferred. They will occur over a period of time. Now, I'm not even getting into the business of past lives, previous lives, and all that stuff. We can see this actually occurring in this life, right now. We can see the consequences often of our actions. Some of the consequences of our actions we might not see, but a lot of them are directly observable. We can see, for example, with harsh speech, the way that we affect others, the consequences of that. We might not see the ultimate consequence, which is how that person then acts with another person. How that one action, that activity of either speech or physical action, can often lead to unforeseen consequences. That which we cannot predict. That which we cannot actually infer that's going to happen at all. So, despite the fact that we can see some obvious consequences, we don't actually often see the end result. We don't actually see the effect of the snowball rolling again and again and again out of an action. Now, if you think of our lives, our lives have been replete, full, of action. To live is to act. We can't not engage in action. This is why the Buddha is emphasizing to us so much that we should be aware. Let's use the word, which again is in the title of the course for this week. We should be mindful of our activities. We should have a cognizance, a presence of mind about what we engage in with speech. It's a very good exercise to try and engage in mindful speech in a week or even just in a day to find, you know, to see how much actually it requires, how much energy, effort it requires for us to be mindful because so much of what exits from our mouths is simply very unmindful. It's very reactive coming back to these patterns of reactivity again. And as reactive, unmindful actions, it gives rise to consequences that sometimes we see and a lot of the time we don't see. We don't see a lot of the pain and the hurt and that which we inflict on others. So when we engage in mindful speech, it brings us into very much a confrontation with our speech patterns, the patterns of our speech acts. When we begin to look at our physical activities as well, our reactiveness 
again on the physical plane, then we begin to see things which you know are almost automatically triggered. The shunning of certain things, almost the physicality of moving towards that which you want, that which you like, that which is attractive, almost the physical sense of moving away from that which you dislike, that which you find unpleasant in your life. Now on the thought level, we're doing that all the time. This is the, you know, I'm giving you a very good, well, I'm giving you a snapshot here of the non or the unequanimous mind, you know, the mind which is not dealing with life in a responsive way, but simply reacting to it. You know, the unpleasant comes along, the mind is literally swaying away from it, just as the body does. You know, the pleasant comes along, the mind is going, oh yes, I want more of that, that's nice. You know, stay around a little bit longer. Whereas the opposite is being, in a sense, said about that which we find unpleasant. I don't want any more of you. Please go away. In fact, I will turn, I'll avert my gaze, metaphorically, from even beginning to examine the unpleasant that comes up. Now, the whole process of mindful meditation towards equanimity is the process of being literally able to see, you know, to see and to move into a non-reactive position towards what is arising in your experience. We start off with very simple ways of beginning to observe, such as observing simply the body breathing, observing the quality of the breath, which is something we'll go on and do tomorrow. To begin to observe via that focus other material that's arising in the mind because no doubt as you've all discovered just even staying with the body breathing or staying with a focus on the breath at a particular point is not easy the mind automatically gravitates because of habitual patterns towards say concerns your own preoccupation your own source trying to sort out the argument you had before you came away. All the things that you're going to do when you get home. All the narrative stories that you're telling yourself about what's going on here at this moment, rather than actually experiencing what's going on at this moment. These are the things that we're caught up in. These are the patterns of mind that we begin to observe. Not, as I think I emphasised hopefully to you today, not as a, as a means of being able to critique ourselves even more severely, but a means of liberating ourselves from being enmeshed and enthralled to those patterns of mind. Yeah. To have some degree of spaciousness of mind that can look, observe and actually unhook from those patterns of mind. Yeah. There's like, if, if you ever want to take a Pali word away for you, have a Pali word for the night. Here's a Pali word for the night. It's a lovely Pali word. It's a word, papancha. This is what the mind does. It papanchas in technical Pali. This is what it means. It means it spreads out, it proliferates, it tells stories. 
It does many, many things, and the other word, actually a derivative word of this word, papancha, which is papanchati, means to obsess. So this is what our mind is doing. It's spreading out, it's proliferating, it's obsessing, it's telling narrative stories, all of which you believe are true. All of the stories you tell yourself. There's a wonderful book by Jeanette Winterson with a little little kind of almost mantra that runs through it. It's a book of magical realism where the most fantastic things happen, the most unbelievable things happen. And as a recurring little, little um, almost epithet keeps occurring is this little phrase, trust me, I'm telling you stories. <laughs> That's what our mind is doing to us constantly. It's almost saying to us, trust me, I'm telling you stories. Yeah. Now the storytelling and the narrative patterns that we weave for ourselves are patterns of entrapment of us often. They're patterns of entrapment to things like fear. They're patterns of entrapment to elements of anxiety. Elements of resentment. Now, I'm dealing with the unwholesome here because actually that's a lot of our experience. It's not the totality of it. I wouldn't even begin to want to you know, push that forward as being what our experience ultimately is. But an awful lot of our experience is this. And this gives rise to something I think most of us are trying to deal with, avoid, um, certainly move away from as much as possible, which is unpleasantness, pain, suffering, dissatisfaction. Now, there's a wonderful word, again, in the original language. I'm sorry to keep burdening you with this, but some of these words don't literally have good translations in English. This word is dukkha. It means to be unpleasant, to be unsatisfactory. Sometimes we think that this dukkha is just happening to others, where it's happening to us all the time. If there is ever this moment where you think, even when things are going really well for you, and you think, well, actually it could be just that bit better, that's dukkha. If there's something at this very moment in time when you're sitting on your seat here just listening, that you would like changed, that's dukkha. So dukkha is this word which is covering a vast spectrum of our experience from mild unpleasantness and dissatisfaction to actually major things like tragedies in our lives and the loss of a loved one, um, illness and sickness and all of these things. It encompasses all of this. So when you hear um, or read, if you delve into basic books on Buddhist practice, you'll come across something which is often known as the first noble truth. Um, I think it also ought to be translated as the ennobling truth or the ennobling task. And the task here is not to evade dukkha, but in some ways to often embrace it to embrace the difficulty in your life. 
life as it comes to us is a vast mix of things, isn't it? I mentioned this last night very briefly. It's pleasure, and there's no denial of that on this path. I mean, pleasure is fine. But be, be, be aware, of course, that pleasure is impermanent. Just like all things, it arises and it passes away. And the attempt to repeat and to you know, keep on extending pleasure often leads to cycles of addiction to pleasurable activities, you know, of wanting to keep on doing it again and again and again. So addiction here, and there's very much an addictive model that's used in Buddhist practice, is not just about addiction to substances. This is addiction to particular forms and ways of life. We're addicted to doing things again and again and again, particularly if there's a pleasure payoff at the back of it. So we keep on repeating um, and doing these things to try and maximize the, the pleasure hit that we get. However, it is, un, it is unstable, it is impermanent, um, there's no way that we're going to be able to stabilize and maximize pleasure for vast periods of time without being caught in this addictive cycle. Life is pain. We know that. You know, unpleasant things happen to us. You know, from, as I say, the loss of loved ones to illness that occurs in our lives, you know, just to things happening that we don't want happening to us. You know, if life is impermanent and things are impermanent within our experience, then, of course, you know, things are changing. And sometimes they don't always change for the good. You know, often impermanence is seen as an enemy, but it isn't. Impermanence, when it, you know, for example, when the boss gives you a raise in salary, you, know, you would think, actually, impermanence is pretty right. <laughs> I'm a supporter of impermanence here. You know, however, when they give you the sack, um, that's not so good. That's kind of thumbs down for impermanence. However, life is this mixture of both pleasure and pain. And it's also a mixture often of a lot of unexciting aspects of repetition and just mundanity that we have to engage in. Yeah. Actually, I've just summed up the challenge here. Pleasure, pain, and mundanity. That's what it's about. Yeah. Often the path, even the Buddhist path, is interpreted as being a path to some kind of mystical, blissed-out state. And it's not. The Buddha's path to awakening, to waking up, not enlightenment, I might add. It's a word I find, you know, it's not actually even a good translation of the Pali term. The path to awakening is a path to waking up to these difficulties. Want it to, and unpleasantness occurs when we don't want it to, and there's an awful lot of mundanity. Now I've really depressed you, haven't I? <laughs> yeah. But what the Buddha is really trying to get us to see and to grasp is that by embracing this dimension of life, we begin to live our lives much, much more fully 
much more dynamically, rather than being in this constant sense, again, the non-equanimous mind, of pushing away that which I don't want, trying to hold on to that which I want, and just putting up with an awful lot of stuff which I just find mundane and boring in my life and has to be done. Now, if that is the case, then our lives take on the patterns, again, of reactiveness. When the Buddha speaks about the first of these ennobling truths, or the first of the tasks to be engaged in, this is not a set of propositions to believed in, to be believed in, even if you know them all. But the first one is that, you know, actually there is dukkha. This is the first ennobling truth. Inquiry into it and the embracing of it is what is ennobling in our lives, not the pushing away of it, not the constant mill of pleasure seeking. Um, in the attempt to avoid the unpleasant dimensions of life. The actual task of embracing and you know, fully accepting that actually life is this somehow takes us out of and takes us away from these reactive patterns. It leads us to a mind which is much more settled much less agitated, where we can begin to look at the world not through the eye of pleasure or the eye of greed. You know, the greedy eye is the, the eye which is you know, seeing everything with an appetite you know, of why want. You know, the aversive eye is the eye which looks at the world and saying, seeing lots of things I don't want. You know, and then there is the kind of rather apathetic, bored mind uh, and the eye of looking at the world, which just sees it as sort of grey and mundane. Now, the question I would raise for you is, is that actually any way to live at all? At the end of his life, the Buddha's so-called last recorded words, again, I often say this, many, I've said this many, many times now, because I think it's such an important phrase, the Buddha is saying at the end of his life, he, you know, he's you know, giving his last teaching just before he dies. And he doesn't give a huge dispensation. I mean, he spent 45 years teaching, and he sums it up in two lines. You know, he sums all, up everything he has to say in two lines. He says, absolutely, I'm going to give you my translation of this. Absolutely everything that you encounter is impermanent. Now get on with it. Yeah. now get on with life now embrace it yeah. in other words there's this sense of embracing the difficult that it is difficult the Buddha doesn't undercut that it is difficult even those who are close to him in his own lifetime uh, again at the end of his life he has, a, he has an attendant for over 25 years uh, who is actually his cousin called An Ananda who accompanied the Buddha everywhere, becomes the, the recorder of most of, of what is passed down to us, if not all of it. And at the end of his life, you know, the Buddha is dying, he's lying in a little hut, Ananda is um, basically leaning on the post, crying, wailing at the Buddha's death, you know, seeing him dying. 
And the Buddha actually says to him something to the effect of, Ananda, have you actually listened to anything I've said? (laughs) (laughs) Have you actually been there when I've been saying this? No. He's actually saying this to him because, in a way, and then actually Ananda is very good as a representative for all of us. We can all hear this teaching. We can all perhaps, you know, nod sagely in agreement with it. But when it comes down to it, we just fall back into our reactive patterns again. You know, impermanence, particularly the stuff we don't want, you know, such as death and loss and that, I don't want to know, actually. I really, really um, don't want to know about these unpleasant things at all. So when we speak about a fundamental confusion, we're also speaking about a fundamental not wanting to know. About fundamentally not wanting to confront dimensions of experience which are there. Yeah. It's actually the opposite of embracing it. I just don't want to know about them. So when we speak about, even if we use the, you know, the primary term that's used to translate this, even when we talk about ignorance, it's not simply about not knowing, it's more about not wanting to know. So there's a whole dimension. Now, the opposite of this not wanting to know is waking up. This is the task, and I'll finish off on some reflections on this. This is the task that the Buddha is really, in some sense, is throwing down a gauntlet for all of us to try and pick up, which is, do you have the courage to want to become awake in this life? Do you have the courage to come out of this sleepwalk? The sleepwalk, again, is, is patterns of reactivity. The sleepwalk, the, the sleep of delusion, the sleep of confusion. Do you really want to wake up out of that? Yeah. Do you really want to embrace life more fully, even with all of its difficulties? That is the challenge that the Buddha is offering. Yeah. He's actually... You know, he's, he's actually giving us a promissory note at the back of this. He said, it's not just simply the task of waking up to this. It's actually you will experience something in this waking up process which is far, far more human. Far less, it's obviously not a term he'd have ever used in his own day, far less robotic. You know, you know, where we're kind of programmed you know, to react this way, you know, to want that to salivate when I see the thing in the shop window that I want, to move away from that which I dislike. That there's something far more human, something far more dynamic, something far more vivid about this way of life and embracing that than simply to be caught into these patterns which become our character. And when that character gets, if you like, sedimented, fossilized, through years and years and years of repetition, of repeating again and again and again, then that literally becomes our life. It becomes, as the Buddha says, the shape of our life. If you want to know the shape of your future, look at what you're doing now. 
This is also what he's getting us to look at. Which is why we spend quite a lot of time sitting on the cushion, actually beginning to look at what is going on for us. Perceiving these patterns and habits of reactivity that are there, and they'll be very, very present to you. In fact, in some ways, they're even more intensified because you can see them in this environment. When you take away the distractions, when you take away all of the things that we're normally engaged in, the busyness of life and that, we're simply less with this bareness of our sense of being and our habits and our patterns. So in a way, I wasn't joking when I said actually a lot of what this experience is is beginning to understand your patterns. To, be under, be, to begin to understand the patterning of your experience, that which you're reactive to, that's which, you know, the fantasy that comes up in the meditation and you cling to, and then you notice you're clinging to it. You notice you've got caught up in it. How much time has elapsed? Five minutes, ten minutes of the meditation session that you've been caught up in that. You notice the pushing away of the things that you don't actually want to know about. Can be, for example, and I said this to you slightly jokingly last night, can be just the patterns of boredom, of sitting there watching your breath, which, let's face it, sometimes can't be terribly exciting. Hopefully we'll expand that a little bit, but you know, in in, prima facie, at the beginning stage, it isn't that terribly exciting, watching the breath. But we are brought face to face, again, with a pattern of reactivity towards boring experiences, i.e. I want to avoid them. I don't like them. My mind wants stimulating. It wants entertaining here. So this is the reason why we spend so much time on the cushion and off the cushion in the walking meditation, watching, observing, noting what has arisen. Noting what those habit patterns are. But the question, and it comes back almost to the question I asked last night in a way, which is why are you here? Um, Why are we doing this? What is your intention behind it? Well, it's quite clear what the Buddha is placing as the intention behind the practice. The intention is to liberate and unbind ourselves from habit patterns. Patterns of reactivity. Nirvana is not something which is like the big bang at the end of the path. It's not the blinding light on the road to Damascus. Nirvana is occurring every time you manage to liberate yourself from a habit. From a habit pattern. Nirvana is usually defined in some way as being freedom from, freedom from the habits of greed, aversion and delusion, because those are habits as well, or greed, aversion and confusion. So when we begin to liberate ourselves, even just infinitesimally, momentarily from that, we have a glimpse of nirvana. And the one thing I haven't said to you, and I'll just finish off on this, is that this word is not a noun in Pali. It's a verb. It's something we do. Nirvana is a verb form. It's nirvana-ing. 
We are nirvanaing every time we liberate ourselves from one of these habits, which we're bound to, you know, literally yoked to. Now, that's the freedom that the Buddha is talking about, the freedom from. You know, the freedom from this great wealth of psychological patterning uh, which we are imprisoned by. But occasionally we get glimpses through the bars of a freedom from. Okay, thank you.